turn to Acts chapter 2 this morning. Acts chapter 2 is our text. And as you're turning there, I'd just like to say welcome again. Happy Resurrection Day. On behalf of the elders at Snoqualmie Valley Bible Church, we are blessed and counted a privilege to, to be your shepherds, to be your teachers. I, for one, speak with great gratitude for the privilege of preaching the word this morning. In recognition of Resurrection Sunday, I'm here to do one thing, and that is proclaim the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. It is the central theme of all apostolic preaching. It is the resurrection that proves everything. It is essential and primary about the Christian faith, and it is a cornerstone of true biblical Christianity. It was the great Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who once said, quote, that the resurrection of Jesus is the keystone of the ark of our holy faith. If you take the resurrection away, the whole structure ruins. In other words, as one other preacher said, without the resurrection we have nothing. With the resurrection we have everything. The resurrection is also the greatest proof that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Therefore, it stands and will forever stand as the greatest apologetic. Only Jesus died for the sins of his people, and only he was raised from the dead and lives today at the right hand of the Father. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God. Because only God can overcome the natural with the supernatural. The resurrection proves he is the only savior of the elect, and it proves that the scripture is true. Not only does the resurrection prove to be central and primary and proving, but it's also revealing. The resurrection reveals to mankind that death is not the end. That there is a future life after this temporary life. So it is right and it's good and it's appropriate for us today in keeping with our cultural custom to squarely focus on the resurrection of our master. And we will do that this morning by taking a very brief look at a key text in the inerrant word, Acts 2 verses 23 to 24. These two verses are discovered in the body of the first sermon ever preached, immediately following Pentecost, which was the event that birthed the New Testament church. It is a powerful sermon. It is a gospel-centered sermon. It is a comprehensive sermon, meaning it tells the full story. And that's what I want to do this Resurrection Sunday. I want to give you the full story. The message, entitled today, the message today is entitled, The Centrality of the Resurrection. And the reason why the resurrection is central, again, because it is the central theme of apostolic preaching. 
And as the apostles were simply messengers or vehicles by which the word of God was proclaimed, that's all I want to do. I want to be a vessel, a messenger speaking the word of God to you today. But not only is it central in the apostolic preaching, it is also very personal to you. And that the resurrection personally affects you. Whether you're saved or not, you will be resurrected unto life or to death at some point in time. And there can be no efficacy of the resurrection without a plan for it, without a preparation for it, the performance of it, or the product of it. And that's how this text unfolds before us this morning. Let's read Acts 2, and we'll just take a chunk out of this profound sermon, verses 23 and 24. Read, follow along as I read that. After Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up with boldness and said, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Let's look at the plan of the resurrection. The plan for the resurrection, verse 23. Here we learn in this verse that the cross was not an afterthought. God was not reacting to the fall of man. He was not reacting to men dying as a result of sin. He's not sitting up in heaven on his throne just watching things unfold and reacting to it. But in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, this was at the very center of God's decreed will. That his own son would be slain, violently executed for the sins of men, only to be raised up again. Look at that verse again. This man, referring to Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan, predetermined Plan. Here we see a doctrine that unregenerate men are stunned by. And a doctrine that, if we're to be honest with ourselves, immature believers tend to misunderstand. Or and sometimes, maybe even ignore or despise. But here we collide with the most pride-crushing doctrine of our faith. God's supreme and absolute sovereignty. Namely, we're going to be reminded or instructed about his complete control over the most gruesome execution and miraculous resurrection of his son. Look at those two words again. Predetermined, planned. In the original, predetermined, it means to mark out definitely, to appoint, to determine, or to decree. It's used in Acts 11.29, which says, And he ordered us to preach to people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Appointed. Determined. Marked out. Acts 17.31 
God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. Luke twenty two twenty two. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. Romans 8. Ooh, we know that one, don't we? Romans eight twenty nine. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Guess what? It's the same word with a preposition added to the front of it. So here's what you need to understand. God, in eternity past appointed Jesus to be born, to go to the cross, to raise from the dead, to judge all men, and he also appointed you to be a part of all that. Because he's gracious and merciful. Now, how many of you are the type of person that when you go on vacation, you have to have a schedule or itinerary of something to do? I'm that way. Yeah, I, I don't like to go on vacation just sit around. I could sit around at home for free, right? I can't stand going somewhere and just sitting when there's stuff to do and see. So if I were to go on my dream vacation, which so happens to be Israel, I'd ensure that all of my time would be accounted for. I'd have every hour scheduled, and I would intentionally not sleep that much. I would make a definite plan because I wouldn't want to leave my experience in the hands of someone else or left to happenstance. Now, even if I were to make that meticulous plan, there's still a possibility my plans could be thwarted, right? A bus could break down. I could get sick. I could lose my wallet or my luggage. So in our human plan, we could do whatever we can to make sure it's going to happen what we want to happen, but there's always a chance that it might not go that way. But when it comes to God's plan, it is not affected nor thwarted by anything. When he made a determined plan to send his son to the cross and raise him up again, there was nothing that was going to thwart it. He determined to appoint Jesus as your Savior. And even the most powerful men on the planet could not prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Now, that should amaze you. But it should also humble you. Knowing that God and his plans are definite. Peter adds that it wasn't merely predetermined. But it was also according to the foreknowledge of God. Look at that word. It comes from the Greek word prognosis. From which we get the English word prognosis. And it simply means to know beforehand. Now there have been gallons of ink spilled in church history to try to get to the plain meaning and implication of the theology of prognosis. And if you've been around the church for a while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We're not going to go there this morning. Prognosis is the same word used again in Romans 8.29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And to put it simply, the word prognosis means that God knew what was going to happen because he was the one who determined it. 
One Greek dictionary says that it was used to denote the foreordained fellowship of God. Another theologian wrote, The word does not simply denote intellectual foresight, but rather a selective knowledge which regards one with favor and makes the object of love and thus approaches the idea for ordination. So Peter here, in his preaching, he's using the strongest terms possible to emphasize that Jesus was given over to evil men by God's eternal plan. And that nothing was going to get in the way of it. His resurrection was planned. Now that we have gleaned from the text that that's true, because God is sovereign, let's consider the preparation for the resurrection. Okay, so it's planned, eternity passed. Now, Jesus has to die before he's raised again, right? Look at verse 23 again. Peter continues, You nailed to a cross. Now, he's speaking to the men of Israel, the context. His audience was the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, who brought indictment against Jesus, and then it was carried out by the Romans, who are the godless men in this text. They nailed him to a cross, which is to say they executed him via crucifixion, which was a common method of capital punishment in the Roman Empire. And for the sake of time and emphasis, I don't want to go in depth about the Roman crucifixion because today is Resurrection Sunday, right? It's not Good Friday. But there are some points you need to understand about being nailed to a cross. It was the first, it was the electric chair of the first century. The Romans refined it to a perfection and, and made it perhaps the most cruel and agonizing and humiliating means of execution in world history. Crucifixion is considered the most shameful and disgraceful way to die. Because, listen, it wasn't just intended to kill. It was meant to torture and humiliate. Which is evident due to the fact that Jesus was stripped naked before they crucified him. It was so gruesome that the Roman government only reserved it only for non-Roman citizens. People who were considered enemies of Rome. And who were to be made examples of as a deterrent to rebels. That's Jesus. That's how he was crucified. Peter says it was done by the hands of godless men. They were pagans. They were, they were followers of a false, dead, worthless religion. They had very little, little to no knowledge of the one true and living God, Yahweh. And what's interesting about this text here, this word translated godless, literally it's the word without law, anamas. So it's not that the Romans were atheists. You know, don't read that and think godless, oh, I don't believe in God. I mean, there were no atheists back then. Everybody believed something. Atheism is a pretty contemporary religion. They were idolaters of the Roman pagan god, gods and goddesses. And therefore, they were deeply immoral men. Having no allegiance 
to the Mosaic Law or had zero knowledge of God. Yet, God knew them. He didn't know them savingly, but he knew them because he created them. He used them as his instrument to bring atonement to people. And though they were unredeemed men, they still, and this is the funny part, they unknowingly and unwittingly were servants of God. They served his purposes so that his predetermined plan would come to fruition. Have you ever thought about it that way? And let that be a lesson today. God will always, even in the midst of heinous evil, use men and women to do what he wants. Men may think they're autonomous beings. Unsaved men may think they are, quote-unquote, captains of their own destiny. But make no mistake, there's a God on the throne in heaven who reigns. And nothing, nothing happens apart from his decreed will. Own that. Own it. And believe it. And if you believe that God is good, then that means that this truth should be one of the most comforting thoughts you can have. Because if God is good, then we can accept the fact, everything that happens, because there's a good God behind it. Amen? And you want to know something else even more astounding? Do you? Yes. Say yes. Men are still held accountable for what they do, even if they are used by God to do his will. One commentator said that the crucifixion, the fact that it was predetermined by God, does not absolve the guilt of those who caused it. Chew on that one. And we see that's a clear paradox in Scripture, isn't it? Peter said it was God's predetermined plan, but you put him to death. We also see that in the Old Testament. In the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. Read about how Yahweh used the Chaldeans as an instrument of judgment against Judah for their sin. Habakkuk 1, verse 6. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans that fierce and impetuous people who marched throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. And then if you drop down to verse 11, in the same chapter, it's revealed that although God would raise them up, they would still be held guilty. You could read more about how Yahweh would judge uh, Judah with the Chaldeans and then judge the Chaldeans for killing Israel in Habakkuk 2. But right now you need to understand that Jesus was delivered by God's predetermined and foreordained plan. It does no way, shape, or form acquit those who put him to death. God uses sinful men to accomplish his purpose, yet never removes the culpability. And clearly, that's what Peter undeniably presents here. There's the plan for the resurrection. There is 
the preparation for the resurrection, Jesus' death. Now the stage is set for, the moment I've been waiting for, right? The performance of the resurrection. Or you could say the act of the resurrection. The happening of the resurrection. Verse 24. But God raised him up again. This verb is actually a compound word in the Greek with the preposition ana, meaning again, and histemi, meaning to stand. So it means to stand up. While Jesus laid in the cold, empty tomb, laying down on the cold stone platform, God caused him to stand up again. So it's precise to render it, God stood him up. And it's because of that one word. Raised him up again. One word in the Greek. It's because of that one word that people all over the globe are assembling today to celebrate the central core of our gospel. Because it was non-negotiable. He rose, God raised him up again. To go out into the courts and preach this like Peter was doing was no less than blasphemy to the Jews and stupidity to the Greeks. But guess what? Did that stop Peter? Did that stop him? No, it did not. It did not. The fact that God raised Jesus up is still to this day a confounding thing, an offensive thing, and to some people a blasphemous thing. But Peter preached with boldness. Acts 2.32 This Jesus God raised up again. Acts 3.15 But you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. Acts 3.26 God raised up his servant. Acts 4.10 Peter, who's on trial before the Sanhedrin, he said, Let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel that by the name Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. Now there are plenty more verses I could go to. That's just Acts chapter 5. That's the first five chapters of Acts. And then you have Acts 6 through the end of Revelation to do a survey of the resurrection. But this isn't a sermon on the survey of what the whole Bible says about the resurrection. You'd be here all afternoon. But the fact is, it's clear, isn't it, that the resurrection was central to the apostles' preaching. They went about proclaiming it with boldness that Jesus had been raised up. And what did the resurrection attest to? So what, in other words? Jesus was raised. Okay, so what? I get it. What's, what's the implication? Well, here's the implication. That he, Jesus, was raised from the dead, attests to God's approval of Christ's work on the cross. In other words, without the resurrection, Christ's death would have been meaningless. Which is precisely why 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless, or futile, some translations say, and you are still in your sins. And as was alluded to in the introduction, the resurrection of Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. It's a cornerstone. If it's removed, our whole faith crumbles, and we might as well all just go home. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Jesus lives, so here we are. And in one sermon, it would be impossible to cover a whole theology, let alone survey of the resurrection. So I just want you to focus on this one simple truth for today, okay? The resurrection guarantees your resurrection. Think about that. The resurrection of Christ guarantees your resurrection. And that's how it affects you deeply on a personal level. The New Testament several times connects Jesus' resurrection with our final bodily resurrection. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. 2 Corinthians 4, 14. The Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. 1 Corinthians 15, the well-known chapter about the resurrection, in verses 50 to 52. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment... In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Oof. Amen. It's mind-boggling to think about that, isn't it? Now, another word that we use in Christian theology to help us understand this physical, future, literal resurrection is the word glorification which is the final step in the application of your whole redemption, when the, when the bodies of the believing will be raised from the dead and reunited with their souls and changed to have a body like his. Philippians 3, verses 20 to 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state, in other words, our earthly body, into conformity with the body of his glory. So this is the believer's resurrection. And this future hope we have is only made possible because why? Because Christ has been raised. Christ died on our behalf, and as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ, but we also live in Christ. He died on our behalf, and he also rose on our behalf. So with union with Jesus Christ through faith alone, 
we also have been removed from death. Which leads us to the product of the the resurrection. Or the effect of the resurrection. Or the outcome of the resurrection. Verse 24b. But God raised him. Putting an end to the agony of death. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Putting an end to the agony of death. Therein lies... The sole reason to rejoice, to have hope, to sing with the expression of pure joy and happiness. Up from the grave he arose, right? With a mighty triumph over his foes. I'm not going to sing because you don't want to hear me sing. He arose the victor from the dark domain and he lives forever with the saints to reign. He rose, he rose, hallelujah, Christ arose. Why sing that? Because he put the death, the agony of death, to an end. The word agony in the NASB is the word that literally means birth pangs, which is intended to carry the idea of a temporary pain in childbearing, the temporary process of birthing, though intensely unpleasant and excruciating. It results in new life. Results in new life. And we all know that bringing home a little baby is one of the most joyous occasions in life, isn't it? I mean, as a parent, I can't compare bringing home my children from the hospital. Nothing compares to it. So it goes from one of the most intense situations... Sorry, ladies, I'm not going to try to pretend I understand it. But it goes to me in one of the most intense and painful situations as a result of the curse. To very shortly becoming the most joyous occasion. That's the language he's using here. So likewise, Jesus experienced a horrific, painful death. And I can only imagine it might have been a little bit worse than childbearing. But even that was temporary. Which is why we do not focus, as Protestants, listen, as Protestant evangelicals, we do not focus on the death of Christ primarily. That's why there's no dead Jesus on our cross. He didn't stay there. He died for once and rose again, and that's it. It's done. There are no more sacrifices to be made. He died once for all and he put an end to death his horrific death resulted in something much more glorious when he arose death was powerless over him why was he able to do this the text tells us because it was impossible for him to be held in this power. Hmm. Now, if you're like me, you come to that, and it just poses another question. Okay, it was death could not hold him in its power. Why? Why could death not hold Jesus? For several reasons. I'm giving it to you really quick. 
Number one, death could not hold Jesus in the grave because of divine power. Jesus, being fully God, cannot die because God cannot die. Amen? Furthermore, he cannot be permanently affected by death because he is without sin, and sin is the cause of death. So this is why your Christology is so vital. If you don't have your Christology in order, you're going to be duped by the Mormon that comes to your door. He had to be God or else he would have stayed dead. If he's just a man, then he possessed no divine power to defeat death and we would still be in our sins. Secondly, death could not hold Jesus in the cold, stone-cold grave because of divine promise. Because God is good and true and faithful, his promises are kept. Consider John 2, 18 to 22. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us that your authority for doing these things? They have authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build the temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Also, Luke twenty four forty six. It says, Thus it is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Jesus said it was going to happen. He made the promise. So he had to come back from the dead or else he would have been a liar. And God doesn't think liars are good, right? Death could not hold Jesus in the grave because of divine power, because of divine promise, and thirdly, because of divine purpose. Divine purpose. God intended his people, remember, from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, he intended his elect, people like you and I, to be with him for eternity. And in order for that to happen, we had to go through Jesus' death and resurrection. Only way. John 14, 6, as a good Baptist, we know this, right? John 14, 6, what is it? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's right. We know that one very well, I think. Maybe we could work on that one. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Notice he said that he's the life. And then in verse 19, Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. If we don't go through Jesus in genuine faith, excuse me, if we do go through Jesus in genuine faith, he has purposed or intended you to live and not die. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? That's why I love Resurrection Sunday. Because it's a time when we can focus on what matters the most. Life. 
life. One of the most impactful experiences I ever had as a Christian is when I, I got to do some on-the-job training with a very seasoned hospital chaplain. And I loved it. It, was, it, was, it fed my soul so much because going to these people who were on the verge of death, all of a sudden nothing mattered more than the gospel. Nothing else mattered but life. Easter Sunday is about life. And the message of the Bible is that eternal life is only made available to those who go to Jesus in genuine faith and humility in complete brokenness and total trust in his death and resurrection. Listen. A person can only go to Jesus when he or she realizes that they're a sinner, rightly deserving the just wrath of God, And when a person understands that, they understand who they are in comparison to God. They understand they need to be saved. And then the only thing to do when they understand they need to be saved is run to Jesus and say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I have no merit of my own. I have only sin. And I need it to be washed away or else I will die. Please, Jesus, save me from the wrath to come and redeem me. I believe that Jesus died in my place on the cross and God raised him from the dead. I repent of my wickedness and confess you as my master. Let me ask you something. Have you ever made a profession like that? If you have, the Bible teaches that you've been regenerated. You've been given this eternal life that Jesus provides. And that's what it's all about. Dead, guilty, condemned sinners becoming alive. Amen? Let me end with this. At the end of Luke's gospel, if you want to, you can turn there. At the end of Luke's gospel, After the account of his resurrection, he writes about Jesus appearing to the eleven. And then something else miraculous happens that we tend to overlook. Luke 24, verse 52. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple praising God. You know the word praise, it doesn't mean sing. It's the word from which we get eulogy. Eulogia. It means to speak well of. In response to seeing the resurrected, radiant Lord Jesus and witnessing his miraculous ascension, they worship with joy and they express thanksgiving in the assembly. And now I think what we need to do right now 
Daniel, that's your cue. What I think we need to do right now, in response to what you just heard, we need to express our thanksgiving for the eternal life that Jesus provides alone. In our assembly, by standing up, good, stand up, and I want you to sing loudly. I want you to sing loudly, Christ the Lord is risen today.